Kia ora and welcome to this episode of Windows on Dementia. My name is Lanita Russell and I am the advisor for services and standards with Alzheimer's New Zealand. Today I will be talking to Alison Douglas, a barrister specialising in health and disability law, Greg Young, an old age and general psychiatrist, and John McMillan, a professor in bioethics, who together in February of this year published a book titled Assessment of Mental Capacity, a Guide for Doctors and Lawyers. Alison, Greg and John, thank you for taking the time to be with us today. Mental capacity is about the ability to make decisions about ourselves and our lives. These can be the big decisions, like where do I want to live, or the everyday decisions, like where would I like to go for a walk. It is an area of increasing interest to those living with dementia, as the rights of people with dementia get more attention, and as people with dementia say, as they have done in the Dementia Declaration, Our Lives Matter, we live our best possible lives when we have control over our lives, when we have support to make decisions that are important to us. So today I will begin with you, Alison. Good afternoon. And Alison, I wonder if you could start off by telling us what is legal capacity and why it is so important when we talk about someone with a disability such as dementia. Kia ora, Lanita, and thanks very much for being invited uh, to talk about this really important subject. So legal capacity is really important because it really is about the human rights of people and particularly um, older people with dementia, because legal capacity is the judgment that an individual has the ability to make their own decisions. And as you've pointed out, decisions can range from simple everyday choices about what to eat or wear to far-reaching decisions that can include legal decisions about the right to choose um, one's health care or to refuse health care or to make financial investments or indeed living arrangements, whether someone um, has a choice as to whether they go into a rest home or not, or whether they can stay living in their own home. So we use the term capacity, um, but it also has the same meaning as competence. So those terms are used interchangeably, and you might hear either capacity or competence. And so why capacity is so important is that because capacity and incapacity or lacking capacity are separated in law by a bright line, and that determines whether a person's consent or refusal to receive treatment, for example, is legally valid. So those who lack or have impaired capacity are then deemed unable to make decisions for themselves, and thereby justifying intervention in their lives by appointing a substitute decision maker or someone else to make those decisions. The driver for our book and the work that we've done in this area is to provide a clear process to assess when someone does not have capacity and if they don't have capacity, who should make decisions on their behalf and on what basis those decisions are made. Obviously, this is particularly important with New Zealand's ageing population and the conditions that cause cognitive impairment 
that are already common and likely to become more prevalent. So dementia is a case in point, but there are other um, disabilities or, and illnesses that might impair a person's legal capacity, and they can include um, a learning disability, intellectual disabilities, people who might have a fluctuating mental illness, or an acquired brain injury. They, these are all areas which where a person's condition can impair their decision-making capacity. So the significance of older people with impaired capacity is that frequently when the person reaches early onset of dementia, that coincides often with points in their lives when capacity assessments become an important, an important issue. So these can be, for example, in a variety of contexts. So as I've mentioned previously, it might be about making healthcare decisions, about choices about a person's living arrangements, um, including, of course, whether they are able to remain in their own home or move into residential care. At that point, people with dementia may face substantial restrictions also on their liberty and freedom of movement, not only when they receive treatment in a secure hospital setting or a dementia unit, but also when they live uh, in an aged residential care facility and about their freedoms in terms of even when they have supported uh, living arrangements in the community. So having legal capacity to make important decisions for oneself is very important. And that's where we come back to how we make those assessments about whether a person has legal capacity. And just one further point, uh, Lynetta, just uh, to be aware that the main law in this area is called the Protection of Personal and Property Rights Act, the Triple PR Act. And that is the law that allows, for example, um, people to make an enduring power of attorney. That's a legal document which is made when a person has capacity to appoint someone that they trust to make decisions for them when they lack capacity. So there's more to be um, said around the Triple PR Act, but that's the main law that applies, particularly in and around uh, decisions and how we decide whether a person has capacity to make uh, decisions for themselves. Thank you, Alison. That certainly does make it clearer and, and does give us a picture of a very, very complex area that has far-reaching consequences. And, and so it is really, really relevant to those living with dementia and to those who are supporting people um, who are living with dementia. So now if I can turn to you now, Greg. With the enormous stigma that surrounds dementia, there's a commonly held assumption that all people with dementia lack capacity. Do you think that's true? Thank you, Lynetta. Uh, no, that's not the case. Early in a dementia, course of a dementia, the symptoms, uh, for example, memory loss, uh, would be usually mild and probably have a very small impact on the person's ability to go about their daily business and and to make decisions. As the dementia progresses, those symptoms uh, and other symptoms like organizational difficulties, word finding difficulties, problems with motor skills develop and, and become more severe. And as all these symptoms progress, 
the person's ability to manage their lives and to make decisions becomes more and more affected. It's also important to notice that different kinds of dementia have different patterns of symptoms and different patterns of progression. So capacity to make decisions refers to the mental or cognitive ability to understand and remember relevant information about a decision and to make a choice or decision and to communicate that choice. It is important, especially with more significant decisions, that the person understands the major consequences of the choice they make. The mental abilities are obviously affected by dementia. So to some extent, dementia of any severity will have some impact on the person's decision-making ability. But the question that you're asking is whether their ability is reduced to the point where they should be legally disallowed from making the particular decision. That is what incapacity is. And the law, as Alison has mentioned, talks about a bright line that divides capacity from incapacity. On the one side of the line, the person has enough cognitive ability either to make decisions entirely independently or with support. And this person is allowed to make whatever decision they want. They can be unwise decisions. They can take risks because that's what you're allowed to do in a free society. On the other side of the bright line, the person's cognitive abilities will have declined to the point where they perhaps don't understand the information relevant to the decision or its consequences. Or if they do understand that information, they can do so and they can only remember it momentarily and, and uh, may change their mind uh, when the decision is come back to sometime later. Or they can't use information provided in, in thinking about the decision and weighing up one piece of information against another to come to a conclusion. And in extreme cases, they may not be able to communicate the decision. Here, the person is likely to be found to lack capacity. And that person is legally not allowed to make decisions, especially if they're negative consequences or risks. The assessing clinician has the task of trying to decide whether the person with a given severity of dementia still has enough cognitive abilities to make the particular decision they need to make. If the dementia is an early stage and the decision is not particularly complicated, it's likely they would still have capacity for that decision. If the decision is more complicated or has serious consequences, the person may be felt to lack capacity even in the early stages. If the decision is very straightforward, a person may still have the capacity later in dementia. We would expect that a person with very advanced dementia would probably lack the capacity for most decisions. Now, one more important thing to say about this is that the assessing clinician, and this is a good reason for a doctor to be, who knows the person to be the assessing clinician, the assessing clinician has to recognize that the person with dementia has a reduced brain reserve or resilience, if you like, and would be vulnerable to becoming much more impaired on a temporary basis, if they become physically ill. This is usually called delirium. And such a person needs to be treated before definitive assessment of capacity is done. Thank you, Greg. You've touched on all sorts of um, different areas there, really, that we could expand further and have quite a discussion. But I'm wondering if you've talked about that bright line, if you, if you could tell us a little bit more now about how someone actually gets assessed for a legal capacity, you know, is, is it a test? What happens? To get someone assessed for decision-making capacity, you need a few things. You firstly need an identified decision, ideally, that needs to be made. 
and you need reasons for questioning the person's decision. And quite importantly, you need to find a person to do the assessment. I'll come back to that in a minute. So we start off by presuming that people have the capacity to make decisions. That's a very important principle. Even the early stages of dementia itself would not be necessarily enough to question that. But we may and probably ought to become concerned if a person with noticeable cognitive problems has to make a very complicated or risky decision, or if they make a decision that's very much out of character for them. So what we talk about are red flags, and we suggest that if we see these red flags, this should at least raise the question about the value or need for a capacity assessment. It would, in fact, justify uh, taking that person and, the, and all the issues to, to a GP, for example. We would say the assessment would be most commonly and probably ideally done by a GP in the first instance, although there are other clinicians like psychologists and medical specialists like psychiatrists or geriatricians who, who can do them. We would feel that the assessor should ideally know the patient to some extent, or if it's a major treatment decision, that they know the treatment that's being given, because that clinician would understand the issues in relation to the treatment decision best. Uh, GPs are usually approached first. We know this is difficult for them for a number of reasons. They've talked about concern, concerns about getting offside with the patient. They've talked about their anxiety about getting caught in the middle of family conflict. Uh, they've worried about having the skills to do the assessment and the consequences of getting it wrong. And there's the problem that there's no particular reimbursement for this kind of assessment, which can take more time than an ordinary kind of consultation. Uh, so we try to address all the other problems. We don't have a solution to the problem of payment. With all of this in mind, if you want an assessment, the assessor needs to have all the information that's relevant to the decision and the reasons that the person's capacity is being questioned. We would advocate, uh, when we teach capacity assessment, that the assessment is divided into three separate stages. And the first stage, which is separate from the patient, is gathering the information needed to do the assessment. So this includes what is the decision? Why does it have to be made now? What are the options? What are the consequences of each of the options, including the option of not making a decision right now? And it's useful, if possible, to know what the person would normally have decided in this situation, if that can be discovered. Uh, we believe the person who has the best chance of supporting a person make a decision would be the GP, uh, because they have some familiarity, a person wouldn't be so anxious with, with their own GP. But apart from that, it would be useful to have a support person uh, available. And deciding who the best person to do that is an important consideration. The GP needs to consider uh, the best place and time for the assessment and whether the interpreter is needed. And it can be easy to forget things like hearing aids and glasses uh, at an assessment of this kind. The first task of the GP is to ensure that any condition the person may have or medication they're on uh, that may have a negative effect on cognition is dealt with. The goal is to optimize the person's ability to make their own decision. You're not setting out to try and prove the person doesn't have capacity. In fact, you're trying to do the reverse. And so you want everything to be as good as possible. And this is why it's important for, for the doctor, for example, to, to think about medical conditions that could be aggravating the situation for the person to deal with those before going ahead with the definitive assessment. The assessment itself, and this is always the hard bit, is an interview in which the decision needs to be discussed and the assessor needs to get the personal patient on board with that assessment. It can be very difficult for a person who's always made their own decisions now to be confronted with 
what's a bit like a cross-examination about something entirely personal. For example, what's the doctor doing asking you about your will? There's no real way around that. The assessment has to target the information that the person needs to know to make the decision so the assessor can be satisfied that the patient or person is considering all the relevant information. The assessment is not one in which the assessor decides if it's a good decision or bad decision. It's a process assessment. So is the person considering all the things that need to be assessed? And that's a reassurance that one should really give the patient all the way through. The assessor also needs to know all of the things we talked about before. What are the, what are the options? Uh, what are the consequences? And is the person able to, to remember those things or at least consistently identify the same option that they prefer so that if we're asked to make the decision the next day, they'd make the same decision. The decision would change very easily for no good reason. You'd question the person's capacity. And finally, the, the doctor or assessor may present the patient with something, some piece of information to see if the person's able to change their mind. Can they factor in some new information that they haven't considered? The third stage in the assessment, which we feel best occurs just a little bit afterwards to give the assessor thinking time, is for the assessor to review what they've found at the interview and decide if they have enough information to come to a conclusion about whether the person has capacity for that decision. Was there anything that needed to be addressed, like a medical issue, an illness, something about medication, that if changed might improve the person's ability to, to handle the information and make the decision. We would like the assessor in the end to come up with a, uh, a conclusion that they're confident enough could go to a court if needed, because ultimately sometimes these things do that. That's great. Thank you, Greg. You've made it clear that there is a need for a clear process for assessing capacity because it does have a significant impact on the lives of the person who um, is being assessed. And as Alison touched on earlier, it can impact on their, their liberty and very much a lot of the things that we all take for granted most of the time. So turning to you now, John, I'd like to ask you whether capacity is all or nothing. And if I was assessed as lacking capacity, does that mean that I can no longer make any decisions about matters that affect me? Kira, Lisa, that's um, it's a really good question because, I mean, you mentioned in your response to Greg that capacity and judgments about this matter a great deal because, in effect, what they can do is remove a person's right or liberty to make certain decisions for themselves. So it's a significant thing, and that's the reason why when people talk about capacity, they usually refer to it as a, as a task-specific notion which means that someone should usually be assessed for whether or not they're able to carry out that specific task. Now, that matters for the reason that you've mentioned, and that we should only make that judgment when we really need to, and we want to preserve as much of somebody's ability to make their own decisions as they can. So that's one reason that we don't want to be removing liberty unless we have to. But the other is because there are a number of different ways in which there are a number of different decisions to be made. So the one that we think about most frequently is whether or not an individual has the capacity to make their own medical decisions or a particular medical decision. But there are actually a range of different decisions. And, and I imagine your the listeners to your podcast are people with dementia and carers and family members, and they will know fully well that there are a whole bunch of ways in which, which people are tr you try to support people to make their own decisions and of a very different kind. 
So they might be things like the capacity. Does a person have enough capacity to change or make their will? Do they have retained enough capacity to be able to enter into a new relationship or a new a new marriage? And so all of these things are reasons why it's important that the abilities that are needed for that specific task are the things that we're thinking about. And they might be different for the different sorts of decisions that we're, we're talking about. Thank you, John. What you've said just now clearly indicates For me anyway, that there needs to be wider discussion about capacity so that there is an increased understanding that it isn't all or nothing and that even if people are assessed as lacking capacity, they should still be supported to have as much control over their lives as they can, just as people with dementia have asked for in the dementia declaration. That's exactly exactly right in that recent movements in the law in this area have moved away a little bit from just focusing upon the assessment of capacity and this idea of it being a bright line test that decides who has the right to make their own decisions and who doesn't, to a process where the first step is one of supporting decision making. And Greg mentioned that in his answer about how you would go about assessing capacity. What you're also trying to do is figure out ways in which you can support this person to, to make their own decision rather than to find problems with the way they're thinking about it so that they can't. So I think there's a, there's a groundswell of awareness that when it comes to thinking about capacity and the assessment of capacity in the context of dementia, that the first step is supported decision making. Indeed, and that's something that certainly we are trying to get the word out there um, and to get people to understand that a lot more. So I think this podcast has been very helpful for that. So Alison, Greg and John, I want to thank you so much for joining us today for our Windows on Dementia podcast and for helping us understand a lot more about legal capacity and why it is of such importance to those living with dementia. I've found it really, really informative, and I'm sure that those that take the time to listen to this podcast will also. So thank you very much, and uh, I wish you well for the rest of your day.